Bilingual in America. Tunei el loga fi America. Bilinguismo negli Stati Uniti. Bilingue in America. Ser bilingue en America. Hi, I'm Suzanne Lasser, and this is Bilingual in America. Today, I am joined with Dr. Lillian Ardell. Lillian is the founder of Language Matters. She is also a biliteracy advocate, coach, staff developer, and I'd say, more importantly, an applied linguist with a passion for teaching and learning. So, welcome. Yeah, I am. Hi, Suzanne. How are you doing? <laughs> Great today. You know, our listeners, as we're here for part of season four, we always just like to get started with a, a quick snippet about your bilingual journey, and yeah. then we can jump right in into some of the exciting things that you're currently working on. Okay, so my journey, I would say it starts with my mother inspiring a love of languages in me. Um, I think she spoke for, speaks for, she was a French major and um, she learned Latin and there was always this, a passion for, for languages and to reach towards language and understandings in that way. And so when I did volunteer sort of youth service through this Amigos de las Americas program that I currently sit on the board of the Chicago chapter today. So I'll plug uh, Amigos. I lived in Dominican Republic and in Nicaragua for, for three summers total um, as I was a, a sort of like a youth ambassador doing sort of community service work and then pursued a degree in education and specifically wanting to contribute to the bilingual education movement as a Teach for America Corps member in um, the Bronx in New York City, right around the time that No Child Left Behind was coming onto the fore. In fact, I feel like I was one of the first cohorts that was operating under some of those more accountability policies. And it was tricky because we didn't know what No Child Left Behind would do in terms of the English language learner demographic. People thought that maybe it was exciting that finally they, there would be more funding and allocation of resources for this community that had been slipping by invisibly. And, you know, certainly since I've been on the scene for the last 20 years, I think that it is probably policies like that that are really heavy handed in accountability uh, do more harm than good for the bilingual populations. And that is wrapped up in the monolingual bias that I will be talking about throughout this conversation today. But we just we exist in a certainly in a country where there is real pressure and value around English and to be proficient in English. And I think many of us in this space are trying to just clap back and recognize where those, those things are coming from. And so I think in terms of my bilingual journey, Spanish is my other language. Um, I, it has always been something I've strived for. Developing a new language is one of the things that I'm most proud of and that no one can take away from me. Nobody can remove, well, that's not true. In schools, people can remove access to your first language. And I think those of us that are have equity in our hearts are trying to do different by that. So um, it's celebrated in the US if you happen to have English as your first or home language and opt to add a new one. Well, what happens if English is not your first language and you are striving to add it? And why, why are there different opinions and perspectives and why aren't those people as equally celebrated? So sort of all over the map with that response, but I think it all ties in together to the things that I'm passionate about and so far as social justice is concerned. 
around a bilingual education conversation. So, so interesting listening, you know, um, first of all, I love that you talked about equity in our hearts, because if we don't feel it, then how are we going to really lean into it and bring about the changes that are so important? And you're so right, right? Also, as someone who learned Spanish as a second language, there has never been that judgment by others when I make a mistake, right? It's always, wow, that's amazing. And to some of of my Latinx colleagues who don't get that same grace, right? The question is, oh, what, why didn't your parents do that? Or didn't you learn to speak appropriately? Or why are you, you know, not using the correct terms? So I think there's definitely a lot of work to do for, for more than one set of the population. Yeah. And we really want to make sure, like you said, that we are not in schools taking away part of the identity. We should not be stripping students of any form of their identity. So I think that's a great segue for mm -hmm. our listeners to hear a little bit about one of the projects that you're currently working on, right? You are coming out with a book and mm -hmm. um, tell us about the genesis of your work for this upcoming publication. Yeah. So if you don't mind, Suzanne, I'd actually like to go dial the chronology clock back a little bit to continue to give a little bit more of a reason as to what brought me to be in a position to write a book and for people to give a darn about what I say. So I want to just build up my Absolutely. credibility. I do have a doctorate. I actually, <laughs> believe it or not, I have four degrees in bilingual education once all is said and done, because I'm just obsessed with schooling. <laughs> <laughs> Lifelong <laughs> learner, huh? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I was a rank and file dual language teacher in the South Bronx for eight years, truly all in New York City. For, for the last few years, I was a, a coach in the school and was always really curious about this intersection of language and pedagogy. And I had a felt sense that the curricula were not designed for our multilingual learners. You know, it's just something that you know in your bones and you feel in your heart that when you're constantly being asked to make modifications and seeing yourself as a, as a teacher struggle and some students get it right. And so it's really like, where can we embed grammar and structural understandings of language, which is part and parcel of a second language acquisition philosophy. And so I, I pursue this doctorate at New York University in bilingual education and shout out to Dr. Shandel Nero and Dr. Miriam Eisenstein Ebsworth and Lorena Yosa and all of these elders of mine that really were very formative in my in unlearning, helping me unlearn things as I navigated making a transition from being a, a practitioner to more of a scholar. So I started to get curious around language ideologies and how teachers come to them. Importantly, Suzanne, if what they say they do aligns with what I observe them to be doing. And I think that's where you can see a lot of misalignment. And so through qualitative methodologies and triangulating data, observation data, also elicited interview data, using an anthropology framework, I started to try to understand what makes sense to each of these four case study teachers on their terms and always taking a grace perspective to say they're doing the best they can. They're working within these restrictive policies for multilinguals and how are they able to step into their power and shine and where are they finding friction? So it was that lens and that type of curiosity that led me to start the Language Matters 
organization. It's a consulting firm that centers on bilingual learners and the teachers that serve them, TESOL educators. And so I think that I, I bring a judgment-free perspective to districts that are grappling with different types of policies that, again, are not truly written with biliteracy or full bilingualism necessarily in mind. There are exceptions. We have the seals of biliteracy happening, and there's been immense amount of advocacy work around bringing biliteracy frameworks into schools. And I'm so proud to be in arm in arm with some of those folks that have done that. Um, and yet the work remains. And in fact, there are active politicians that are trying to stamp out any of the types of work that we are moving forward as they see it as threats to their positionality in the United States and just a really ugly sort of a stance. So that said, that brings me to wanting to write this book called Disrupting okay. the, the Monolingual Bias. And I've already mentioned this monolingual bias before, because to get really concrete, I can think of many examples, one of which was, I mean, New York City, a, a city that has historically been very affirming of bilingual and biliteracy practices for our multilingual learners, I'd argue even at the forefront in a lot of ways. And I remember being a fourth grade teacher 15 years ago, and was in a dual language 50-50 model, I was the the, the self-contained teacher in this one particular year. And October's rolling around, November's rolling, we get to December, and as the calendar strikes January, well, now it's time to give up Spanish because we know that the tests are rolling around in April and we have oh to give God. all of our instruction over to English. Mm. Mm. And I'm just like, so you were full of it when you said that it was a 50-50 model and we're just going to allocate 40% of our instructional year and pretend as though this isn't a full bald-faced lie. And again, you can trace that right back up to powerful monolingual policies that privilege and center English proficiency that completely are in full contradiction of what we know for the research on developing full biliteracy and bilingualism. And so just rampant misalignment of policies, mission statements from schools, teachers not having any agency to be able to say, I will not <laughs> step in line and follow with that policy, even though my heart was yearning at that time. And, and the thing is, is that students and parents in that case are the ones with the least amount of power to be able to clap back to say, we won't do that. That's not what we signed on for. And first generation parents that are sending their children here saying, well, if it's for the good of English, then, then I believe that it's, it's upright and it's true. And so this notion that there are real blind spots, even with well-meaning administrators and policymakers that say that they want for full advancement of populations, you have to think what is the cost that it's going to take for that and who, who in the space is in a position of relative power to be able to resist the monolingual ideologies and promote something new and different. And so I'd like to be a part of that group and make those contributions to give real tools and strategies and the types of conversations and activities to arm everyday folks with doing that type of work. You've been referred to as the, you know, the luchadora de idiomas, right? The cheerleader for languages. And it's apparent, right? And just listening to you and the work 
that you have taken on and really driven you to pursue all the different avenues that you have in the name of disrupting, right? This monolingual bias. Tell us a little bit more about what the book will have inside, right? Of course, you can't tell us everything because we're going to want our (laughs) listeners to to go out there and purchase the book once it comes out. But definitely give us, uh, you know, some broad strokes about what we can find inside. Yeah, well, I'd really love to, to promote this one activity that I designed just this summer. It's one that I've had such um, enthusiasm around with the teachers that I've worked with so far. And it's one that really is hitting a chord in today's conversations. So the name of the activity is take a stand on the reading wars. And the byline is, I can't tell you how to think about which side of the reading wars, only you can do that for yourself. I can give you the research, a word bank of terms, and some frameworks to think about. And then you're going to have to choose for yourself and then go advocate for your position on it. And really trying to bring a learning activity and experience and the way that this activity is designed is it comes sort of at the end of any one of my workshops where we're talking about ideologies and the monolingual bias and being able to trace how it exists in the policies at the school level and the deficit sound bites that you hear from folks and to say, okay, I have the terms that I'm going to be using. For example, a phonics first ideology. This is a this is a more of a theory reporting paper that came out. I'll give a hat tip to Patrick Proctor at um, Boston College at this, the Lynch School of Education who put it on my radar. And so he's not an author, but he's the one that I learned about it from. Okay. And it's this notion that there is a, a fealty to phonics being such a fundamental and crucial part at the expense of other parts of literacy development when it comes to developing readers. Just holding that notion of, do you see evidence of this in any ways in the areas that you're occupying? And these sort of, these, this sort of like trajectory of landing at a phonics at where you're promoting it. So that's one example. Also understanding about the monolingual bias and then suggesting that teachers write a sort of a, an advocacy letter. They have an audience in mind, maybe a stakeholder that they would like to have a conversation with. And they sort of write this firmly grounded in evidence, but also it's an opinion piece. It's an argument that they're crafting about what they think works best for multilingual learners' literacy trajectory. It's a thought activity experiment. And I find once you do something in writing and have conversations with allies, then you can step more firmly into your confidence and power to take some stands at a PTA meeting, for example, or when there is some voting happening on a policy in your school. Um, and I would argue even in those moments where you're not, you don't emerge victorious because most of the times we will not, um, knowing that you did everything that you could and that you educated yourself, people can't take away insights that you gain. They just can't but you becoming more educated and sharper in your reasoning and becoming a more informed teaching core. And that's what I'm interested in doing. That is a really powerful example of the work that you're bringing forth. And by having individuals go through that process, you are arming them because the truth is there are a lot of naysayers out there. And so this disrupting the monolingual bias is really a lot of different ways of thinking about 
how we can center language and language growth, the linguistic components of literacy. One of the chapters is about juicy sentences and a close reading methodology that I've designed, um, thinking about form function relationships, which is a really heavy cognitive lift for teachers that have not had a lot of linguistic training in their experience. And there is a lot of fun with being able to map meaning. Yeah, there really is. And so there's like a heavy, there's linguistics components to it. There's really helpful tools and strategies. There's some of the ideology work and all throughout it, I'm going to be very sassy and very playful in the way I describe these things. There are multimodal features in the book as well, which I'm excited about. There's one activity where I ask uh, readers to rewatch the Bad Bunny Grammy performance and think about translanguaging in that way. All right. Smart. Right? Right? Yeah. And joy is so important, right? It's, I can't recall when I was growing up, right? There being a lot of joy in education. But as an educator, right, we recognize the importance of that, the playfulness, the fun. And, and I think that that says a lot that you're bringing that. And I love the sassy side because that speaks to me. Because uh, <laughs> you're a New Yorker. Yeah, so yeah. You know, <laughs> and this work requires that you be sassy, right? It is not for the faint of heart, as we know. If I had to ask you, is there one specific need that is most relevant right now or most pressing when we think about our multilingual learners? I mean, I feel like I already said joy, centering joy and joyful pursuits in the classroom. I would also say that I'm deeply concerned about bilingual teacher attrition right now. I think that the pipeline is threatened. I think that the pandemic did a lot of gnarly things for teacher sense of purpose. I think there's been a big sort of a divide between why bilingual educators got into education and what they're being asked to do, not even asked, really told to do on a daily basis. And so I'm really seeking to close that gap and to bring bilingual and TESOL teachers back to what was the spark in you that brought you into this profession? Because it wasn't the money and the status. We know that, right? It's, it's, It's something spiritual and pure. And I am interested in a healing sort of pedagogy, adult learning experiences, where we can go back to sparkling, beautiful moments that we recall, maybe some difficult memories we hold, where languages were taken away or lessons that were learned as a moment of sort of survival in this country to become an educator and try to piece ourselves back. I really am inspired by Dr. Goldie Muhammad's work. Um, So, so impactful and also rooted in a lot of good scholarship. And so I would say sort of a healing journey for the bilingual educators. And I wanna see a lot of centering and a lot of Latinx teachers putting up boundaries this, this school year. That's what I'm for. Well, you said it, so hopefully we're (laughs) we're gonna see it, right? You do a lot of engagements as a keynote Mm -hmm. and maybe you just want to talk about a recent topic that you're fired up on or something that continues to keep you dedicated to this important work. What keeps me dedicated to it? Well, so one of the things I talk about is small, brave moments in bilingual education. And I'm really interested in getting in front of PTA groups, if I'm honest, I think there's an immense amount of power and capacity to be built from 
parent stakeholders in neighborhoods. We know that there is a gentrification in bilingual ed spaces and I am existing, my intersectionalities are coming into question. I'm a white resourced woman who is bilingual and opted to speak Spanish. So I have my daughter's future as a bilingual speaker. And what are, what are contemporaries of mine saying or not saying insofar as they're seeking out equity? So I would like to speak from what does stepping up versus stepping back in specific communities, helping parent groups think about positionality. And I think there's a lot of good work around that and we could do more. And what does it sound like when we're working not only in our action and word and in deed? That's the statement that I wanted to say. Are we in alignment with what we're saying and how we're behaving and what would equity look like in that way? And here locally in Chicago, I'm a parent of a daughter that's going to be attending a Chicago public school. And I'm really keen to start having some of those conversations with community stakeholders um, in the neighborhoods that I occupy and also in the neighborhoods where I'm, I'm doing contract work. So that's some of the messaging that you're going to be hearing from me. And if there's anybody that this resonates and you're interested in bringing me into your parent organization spaces to think about these things, I'll tell you, I'm not going to sugarcoat things. That's not my style. I also don't think that that is what is best for the communities. And I'm also <laughs> a very good right. listener. And I know how to listen. I'm uh, hopeful that your audience will continue to grow. I think <laughs> that that would be a really powerful presentation and allow a space for open conversations that are often difficult but important. And with all the work that you're taking on, there are opportunities for you to do coaching, staff development, keynotes. You're coming out with your book, right? Mm -hmm. You are clearly showing many small, brave moments yourself. And we so appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today, share a bit with our listeners. And uh, why don't you let them know where they can find you on social media so that people can connect. You got it, Suzanne. Way to land that plane. So my company is called Language Matters, and you can find my website at www.languagematters.org. So it's O-R-G. I am at Language Matters on Instagram, and I am Lillian Ardell on LinkedIn. I also have a YouTube channel that I've been posting some videos on there. And I feel like mostly it's the website if you wanted to find me through there come sign up for my mailing list where you get a lot of goodies and a lot of sass on an early monday morning and thursday morning and um just join my movement because i think there's so many of us out there and it's a lot of hard work so we should do it in community that's what i believe agreed dr lillian ardell we want to thank you for joining us today on bilingual in america thank you for disrupting monolingual bias and uh, we encourage you to continue to speak your beauty the only way i know how to be suzanne <laughs> thank you for your interest in the stories we share by sharing following and liking our podcast on anchor.fm bilingual in america and our instagram blog at bilingual in america.podcast you are speaking your beauty we welcome your comments and feedback and we appreciate your support Follow us, like us, share us.